May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. Several decades ago, at a time when I was thinking very deeply about God and money, I went to my then Presbyterian pastor and asked her what to do. What's the right amount to give to the church? I wanted to know. Should it be a tithe, a tenth of my income? Now that seemed like a good guideline for Christians, right? It would have been a challenging pledge for our family, but ultimately not likely to break the household bank. And I, like that young man in Mark's gospel, was really committed to doing the right thing for God. I waited for my pastor's affirmation. She held her silence for a moment longer than was comfortable. Her gaze was warm but unflinching. In hindsight, I realized that hers was a look of love, the kind of love that could see more faithfulness in me than I could see in myself. And after that penetrating pause, she spoke with a kind of measured compassion It's not enough, she said. Now, I might have laughed, but I didn't. I might have argued or excused myself as fast as possible. I might have been shocked and gone away grieving. But instead, I matched her in reverent silence because I understood exactly what she meant to communicate in that moment. There is no fraction of my income that's proportionate to the generosity of God. There is no list of commandments that I could follow that would make me good enough to merit the love of God because God's goodness does not require anything of us. Instead, it invites everything of us. I love Jesus in the story we heard today. I love the one who promises a hundredfold to those of us who would risk our community and comfort to follow him. I love the one who upends the usual order of things, naming the first as last and the last as first. I love the one who pauses to love a conflicted man, despite his evident unwillingness to give away his treasures and follow. I'll confess that I love that man, too. I see myself in him. I also see my father, an alumnus of Harvard Day School. You Los Angelinos in the congregation, and I know there are a few of you, you'll recognize that name. He was the eldest son of a manufacturing entrepreneur I see Brett Kavanaugh at the top of his class at Georgetown Prep, striving for admission to Yale. What must I do? What more must I do? Wonder the expectation-laden young men of the privileged classes who publicly mask their youthful self-doubt, their understandable youthful self-doubt with alcohol and aggression. At least the man in Mark's gospel, whom Luke calls a ruler, and Matthew describes as young, at least this particular Hebrew prep school student, if you will, 
had the courage to ask his anguished questions out loud. What must I do? No wonder Jesus loved him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is such a heartfelt question, although not one that people around here ask a lot, or they don't even, at least they don't ask me. <laughs> Feel free, I'm taking appointments. <laughs> I do think, though, that there is an analogous question that is right for contemporary people with wealth and power, which I want to say in a global sense is all of us, whether we feel like it or not. What must we do not to lose our capacity for empathy and love? That's a question with direct bearing on our salvation, no? Because however we understand the saving grace of God, it's not something that any of us benefit from absent the full participation of the poor and vulnerable. There are no border walls keeping widows, orphans, or refugees out of the kingdom of heaven. Contemporary neuroscientists who seem to have a remarkable capacity to empirically corroborate what sages have taught for centuries Neuroscientists warn us that privilege and power actually damage our brains. They make us more impulsive, less risk-aware, and less adept at seeing things from someone else's point of view. They actually erode our capacity for mirroring, which is the neural architecture of empathy. So I find myself wondering if Jesus wasn't implicitly saying to the young man, preserve your God-given capacity to love others. Leave aside your money and wealth. Follow me in my motley band of powerless people and learn what it is to live a life of vulnerability and interdependence. Save your brain from thinking that you are the center of the universe. Compassion is the way you inherit eternal life. This past Monday was the federal holiday of Columbus Day, named for a rich young man of the 15th century who had a taste for adventure and a remarkable lack of empathy for the human beings he encountered on his travels. Of course, we in Portland celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day if we celebrated anything at all, which is a welcome correction. But I found myself equally intrigued by a kind of popular movement to rename the holiday Bartolomé Day in remembrance of Bartolomé de las Casas. He had been born in Spain, barely a generation after Columbus, and was a direct beneficiary of Columbus's conquest. Bartolomé was one of the first colonial settlers of what was then called the New World and his participation in ongoing military incursions against native people made him wealthy, wealthy in land and slaves. He was indeed a rich young ruler. He was also a priest. His military service had been as a chaplain, and according to his own diaries, it was his study of a passage from Ecclesiasticus that led him to free his slaves 
and give away his land. From Ecclesiasticus 34, the eyes of the Lord are on those who love him, the text says, but if one sacrifices ill-gotten gains, the offering is blemished, the gifts of the lawless are not acceptable. You might say that it was the loving eyes of the Lord, as Bartolome experienced it in this text, that caused him to abandon his ill-gotten wealth. He passed the remainder of his life as an advocate for the rights of indigenous peoples, and his writing in the 16th century foreshadows contemporary Latin American liberation theology. Christopher Columbus, Bartolomé de las Casas, two men of relative privilege who became wealthy from the spoils of European colonialism. One kept his riches and got a national holiday named after him. One gave his wealth away and became a political target of the colonial classes in his day. It would be easy to see their examples as a kind of binary choice, just as we might be tempted to look at the action of the man in Mark's gospel. Give it all away or keep it. Follow or turn away. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews is equally binary in describing that decisive encounter with the word of God, kind of like Bartolome experienced it, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I wonder, does that story of the young man pierce your heart? Does mine. In different ways, every time I read it, let me encourage you to linger with any discomfort it raises for you, never losing sight of that look of love that Jesus offered the man. I can't know how this challenging gospel story will interact with the thoughts and intentions of your hearts, but I hope you will be patient to learn its lessons for you. And if you listen carefully to what the story says and equally carefully for what it does not say, you'll notice that it never tells us what happened to the man, neither in this passage nor any other in Mark. The ambiguous ending, that's a favorite of Mark's. He concludes his entire account of Jesus' ministry with two women running in fear from the empty tomb. But, but we knew, no, and Mark's original hearers certainly knew, that uncertainty and fear are not the final word on Jesus' ministry. The existence of their community was an ongoing manifestation of resurrection, just as ours is today. The ambiguity in the text finds its resolution in us. We are the ongoing gospel story. And I like to think that scriptural ambiguity gives us an opportunity to make different choices over time. Just as that colonial impulse made Columbus rich, and also converted Bartolomé de las Casas, human beings, individually and collectively, have the capacity to respond to the same situation differently. 
over time. On a personal stewardship level, I don't give everything. But I give a lot more now than I did on the day of that fateful encounter with my former pastor. On a social justice level, laws that protect the dignity of women have gotten much stronger in our lifetimes, no? And trusting that we all have the capacity to make more faithful and more just choices. I pray that the young men who graduate from our elite prep schools now will be advocates for their female peers. I pray that our newest Supreme Court justice will as well. Marking ambiguity, it allows for any number of outcomes even within the same person. Because as far as we know, the rich young man could well have sold his treasures and returned to follow Jesus later. So let's we ourselves take the risk of returning to this story time and again. Make the best choices, the most faithful choices that we are able to today. And whether that means we give 10% or 100% or nothing at all right now, let us allow ourselves to rest in that unwavering gaze of love, which as long as we're willing to return to it, will steadily transform us, transform us into people of greater compassion people of greater justice, people of greater vulnerability, of generosity, people of greater love. Amen.